this episode, you'll hear Kiara talk about journals she kept when she was young and how they are no longer around. This made me think of my grandfather and how, about a year before he died, he wrote his life story, longhand, on yellow legal pads. I think I may have mentioned this before. He held one up to show me one time when I visited him in his assisted living apartment. I was excited that he did this because I didn't know his story. We didn't talk in that way. Everything was very present tense in my family. So he was creating this record and I knew I would at some point learn his life story. When I was younger, I kept journals from about age 15 to 22 or 23, full of rantings and poems and questions like, why am I so unhappy? Like Kiara talks about, they are not exactly a record of my day-to-day life, but they sure do reveal something about who I was and what I was thinking at the time. The writing is terrible, to be honest. The poems are overwrought like you'd expect from a teenager who never actually read poetry. The point the journals are making, that I'm miserable, don't know why, and don't want to be that way, was clear by page three of the first journal, yet continued on for hundreds of pages spanning five separate journals. I'm completely embarrassed by this writing, and I hope nobody sees it, but I'll never toss it. That's what my grandfather did at the end of his life. He wrote his story and stumbled on something he wasn't proud of. He didn't want anybody to read it, so he threw it all away. I never got to learn the story of his life. And I wish I did. So I'm holding on to my rantings and ramblings because they're all I have. They're a historical record, for better or for worse. There might not be anybody with an interest in reading them when I'm gone, but As I age and grow farther and farther away from those memories, I realize it might be me who want to read them, to recall a time in my youth when I had those feelings, to remember a life I lived. And that's enough to risk some superficial embarrassment that might arise between now and when the time comes that those pages turn to dust. everybody to the subtext. My name is Brian James Polak. For first-time listeners, the subtext is a podcast brought to you by American Theater Magazine, a program of Theater Communications Group. Each month I have a conversation with a playwright about their lives and their writing as I try to learn what it is that makes them tick. This month, I spoke to a playwriting hero of mine, Pulitzer Prize winning Chiara Alegria Hudes author of Water by the Spoonful, Elliot, A Soldier's Fugue, The Happiest Song Plays Last, book writer of the musical Miss You Like Hell, and the Tony Award-winning musical In the Heights, which, by the way, comes out in movie theaters this June. Kiara also wrote the adapted screenplay for the film version of In the Heights. 
she also also recently published a memoir titled My Broken Language, and I am almost finished reading this absolutely stunning book. If you don't already know Kiara, she's just flat out awesome. Before we get to the conversation, please go rate and review the subtext wherever it is you get your podcasts. And if you're on the social medias, you can find us on the Twitters, the Facebooks, and the Instagrams. Connect with us there and share the show with your friends. All right, on to my chat with Kiara. We talk about excavating memories, writing her memoir, and how the Crucible in the Scottish play really pissed her off when she was in high school. This conversation was recorded over Zoom on April 12, 2021. Are you you in New York right now? Yeah, I'm at my studio in Washington Heights. Something I've been thinking of because I... I was really fortunate enough to get an early copy of your book, but I am like a voraciously slow reader. If that makes, uh-huh. if yes, that makes that's sense. exactly my category of reading also. Uh, but I'm loving it, but I'm only, so there's only so much that I know, you know, uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm up to like your senior year of high school basically. And uh, the thing that I've been thinking a lot about because I'm kind of obsessed with memory how do we remember things? And then how do we recall things years later? And that's a, a huge exercise that you had to go through in the process of writing this book. Uh, I'm curious if you could talk about like, I don't know, your process of having to sort of excavate things, particularly, you know, way, way back in your early childhood. I think we remember more than we think we do. I, I don't know. I walk through life being like, I don't remember anything because there's a lot I don't remember, you know, I I don't remember how old I was when dot, dot, dot. I don't, I I switched schools a lot because once my parents separated, there was like different custody arrangements all the time. And that meant I was switching schools all the time. Like I, I honestly couldn't tell you where I went to school for fourth grade. I couldn't tell you who my second grade teacher was. Like I got a letter around the time I did in the Heights from someone who i probably honestly was claiming to be like my first grade or kindergarten teacher, like just no recollection on my part. And so because I kind of walk through life in that particular fog, the narrative becomes like, I don't remember anything, mm. but actually it's not true. When I sat down to, to write it, it's like, oh no, I remember a lot, but in my own way and quite vividly <clears throat> in my own way. So I was surprised. I was surprised when I actually took the time to do the excavation at how much was in fact there. Did you have things you used as triggers like photographs or letters or other items to sort of help you go through that process? And not a lot. I kept, I was, I was a nonstop writer as a kid. And by the time I reached adolescence, well, middle school, yeah, I started journaling intensely. I would write poems and journal entries. It it wasn't so much a diary. So it wasn't like, here's what happened today, but it was a ton of writing in there that did chronicle my life in some ways. Um, And I disposed of all of those before I left for college. Um, A lot of the stuff I was working through was stuff I didn't want to have experienced, feelings I didn't enjoy having and stuff I didn't want to remember. So I was like, okay, I'm ready for a fresh start. Bye. I tried to burn the journals in my bathtub and that was, that 
quickly proved not safe. So I just <laughs> got a lot of like heavy duty trash bags and carried, I don't know, uh, six years of, of notebooks down into the, into the dumpster in, into the trash cans in the alleyway. So I didn't have that stuff to work from. I mean, like my book came from my memory being jogged by a home video. Um, a cousin of mine popped in a DVD that had been once upon a time a VHS and somehow transferred. And it was from 1991 and it was from a dance party. And seeing that I hadn't remembered that until I saw it and then I remembered it very vividly. Um, and also it's not something I had owned or anything. So it's not something I had, it's not like a family photograph I had built up a memory around. It's like, oh, the trigger came and then I remembered the scene. And it was us all dancing like ecstatically. And I knew it that that was one of the hardest years in my family because there was a lot of loss, there was a lot of death. Um, and so remembering the loss that was kind of off screen in this home video, but seeing the joy and full embodiment with which we danced, like that was it. That's when I started writing. Did you find there was a particular time in your childhood that was more vivid as you were writing? You know, I was a daydreamer. So a lot of my memories are of what was happening inside me, of the internal stuff, you know? So, I mean, honestly, the book is the, it's in some ways the plot of the book was determined by the stuff I remember. I remember a lot of sadness, a lot of melancholy. I remember a lot of um, imaginative play that was like, for me, that was GI Joes, that was board games. Like I would just use my imagination and come up with things. I, yeah, I don't remember like the stats very much at all. Like I mentioned, I don't remember how old I was. I don't remember what grade I was in. I don't remember even where I went to school or which township my school was in at certain times, but I remember experiencing life. I'm writing something for the first time in my life that is very directly based on life. You know, lots of things that I write, lots of things that lots of playwrights write are loosely based or inspired by or characters are from somewhere in our life. And we, we put them all together into a work of fiction. But right now I'm working on this thing that is truly, honestly, based on my life in sixth grade. And uh, I've been thinking about it recently and realizing that this year was the first year that I truly remember. Although I don't remember teachers' names and I don't remember actually any conversations and any of that detail, but I remember the plot of the entire year. Like I remember every every event that really sort of that that turned my story for the entire sixth grade year. And it's and I'm writing this as I'm reading your story and, and very much thinking about process and the process that that you must have gone through to to write your book. And it's really it's really triggering uh, for me anyway uh, to go back and think about childhood 12 year old me who's like the first time I'm switching into sort of like the first adult thoughts of my life are being you know thought mm. and uh those first feelings of um yearning for another person or to you know to to like it wasn't it wasn't quite love and it wasn't sexual because it was, it was like pre-sexual and pre-love but it was like this sort of like early yearnings and I'm hearing I'm listening to all this music from that time and I'm like, oh my God, I'm at the dance right now. And it's my first dance. 
and I'm so scared and in the corner and shaking and humiliated and full of anxiety. Mm. And, and uh, I'm reliving this as I'm writing it. So I'm wondering if you like experienced things like that, where you, as you were writing this narrative, if you stumbled on an event from your past that you hadn't really thought about that sort of like shook you in some way. Yeah, there was a lot of work to do emotionally. You know, some of the memories were not particularly fun to live through and to spend, you know, to tell the story, for instance, of how scared I was witnessing animal sacrifice in my home before I understood it. I had to really put myself back there. It was a very emotional and confusing experience. And yet it was what I learned to uh, understand with much more cultural context later and, and come to appreciate and respect later. So I had to like, to, you have, and that chapter doesn't happen in a day. It, it, it took me months to write that chapter. So I have to go through it, like really fine tooth comb that experience every step of the way. You know, when I, I mean, I honestly think that our experience of the present tense is just as suspect and foggy as our experience of the past tense. Um, so when I was experiencing it, all I knew was I was crying and very upset and became a vegetarian. Um, that didn't make it into the book, but, um, but looking back, I had to be more particular and articulate like, wow, I'm in awe of my mom. She's powerful at the same time as, wow, I'm scared of my mom. I didn't think, I didn't have that particular thought as I was having experience as a child. I can, I realize now I can parse it out, you know, to look back on memories with my um, Tia Tonya and that kind of upset me or that awed me and look back and remember like there was, sh I had shame about certain things. I didn't know that that was shame then. I know it now I'm able to, you know, spending time with it and looking back, I can see those things more clearly um, to spend time with my experience of my dad's wedding day, which is not a great memory in my life. That was really hard because again, like in, in my mind, like in my casual life, I'm like, oh, formative bad memory, pretty big. I'm not like thinking about it on a deeper analytical level, but to really sit and spend time with what happened that day, what was that experience for me? It was hard. So you have to experience it and then you have to kind of like reheal from it. But the, the thing is like, because it opens, it reopens the wounds. So you do have to reheal from it, but rehealing from it as an adult is a much more powerful place to heal from than as a child when you're essentially powerless. So in some ways, the closure, I, I've had closure in a way that I was not able to attain as a child. You mean through the process of creating this book? Yes. And having to work through its emotions. Yeah, I had to face them and I, you know, I had to then meditate on and try to heal them because I don't want to walk through life just, you know, having those wounds like right on my, right out on my uh, chest, on my arms, on whatever, my heart. Mm. Was there any particular story or chapter that you really struggled with including? Not that you, not something that you cut, but something that's in the book that you really weren't sure if you wanted to include or share with, with the public? Honestly, I think the book is 
in some ways an articulation of and a voicing of all of the things I've thought through my life. I don't want to share this and I don't want to talk about this, you know, because the book does look at shame and it looks at silence. Like those were lifelong experiences I had surrounding my mother's spiritual practice because Lukumi, which is popularly known as Santeria, it was a very maligned and misunderstood philosophy and practice. It was very shamed. And so necessarily, you know, there was a secrecy about it. I don't, as an adult, I don't feel the necessity for that secrecy anymore. I don't carry that shame anymore. So I'm, you know, I'm, and in fact, quite the opposite, which is I want to speak about its beautiful components and its powerful components. Um, so, you know, so writing the book, yeah, it's like, no, I'm going to write the things that we spent, I spent my life not wanting to talk about and that my, you know, matriarchs spent their lives not talking to me directly about. There's this wonderful sequence where your mother starts to feed you books. Mm -hmm. And, and I love the way you two communicated with each other through that, the silence of the exchange. Uh, I just thought it was so beautiful. Is that when through this, on this reading of these books that she was giving you, is this when you, this sort of like sense of misunderstanding of the religion sort of like coalesced in your brain and you started to really understand what it meant? It wasn't such a before and after because one of, you asked earlier about my, um, like my earliest memories and one of my earliest and most vivid life memories is how my mother would pray over me, um, would involve me in her spiritual practice. And these were, they remain some of the most beautiful memories of my life. She was just a deeply gifted spiritualist. Um, and I could feel I, at times she would heal me. It, I had pneumonia a few times as a child and she could shiatsu massage some of that out of my lungs. So I knew her gift is one of light and it's one of beauty. I hadn't, there was no question in my mind about that. And I also knew her spirit to be benevolent and the things she did to be for the greater good. So then later, uh, as I go into middle school and she begins her, her practice studying Lukumi, studying the um, Yoruban and Afro-Caribbean traditions involved there, I was seeing horror movies about quote unquote Santeria and it's very horrified and uh, it's very othering of those practices, but um, you know, and I didn't understand the animal sacrifice component that was horrific to me, but I admit, even as I was horrified by it, I was like, but I just literally just had a cheesesteak for lunch. You know what I'm saying? So I was like, so why does that not horrify me? And also at that same time, as my mother was becoming a more and more respected scholar and practitioner in the Philadelphia Lukumi community, She's taking me to various events that are just absolutely beautiful. You know, I'm meeting elders that are so wise and respectful. I'm seeing ceremonies that are for cleansing and for spiritual openings. And these are beautiful experiences. So I just didn't know how to see it all together. And I didn't understand a lot of the vocabulary. This is a practice that involves a lot of study, you know? So I think when I expressed curiosity about it and, and said to her, I want to understand. She was like, oh, if that's the case, part of the way you understand this tradition is through study. So here, do your work. 
how much of her practice or the practice of this do I refer to it as a religion, a sure. faith, a faith? I'm not sure the, the yep, religion, proper words. Faith. I mean, it's it's religion feels so associated to um, like locations to me. Like a mm -hmm. religion happens in a church, religion happens in a temple, it happens in a monastery. This doesn't have that sort of um, locationality to it. These are living room practices, but it's definitely a faith. It's definitely a philosophy. It's a way, you know. So how much of this, this faith became part of your, of who you are as you, as you grew up and grew to understand it better? <laughs> so much. And these things don't happen consciously. I don't think they were far more organic. So I didn't think back then in a way that I understand and do think now, oh, I am the daughter of a priestess. I'm the daughter of a santera. Therefore, that is my story. That is what I put into the world. But that is who I was. And that is what I did in the world. Like I went to Yale. I wrote a musical there. I wrote two musicals there, actually, that involved the Orisha, um, which, are, which are the kind of basic uh, source energies and spiritual energies involved in Lukumi. So one was about Ogun, who is the, the Orisha of justice and war. The other one was about Gyamaja, which is of mothering and nurturing in the ocean. And uh, so it, these were my materials. This was my subject matter. This is where my curiosities lie and, and where I found um, my aesthetics. You mentioned before how you were always writing and you wrote all of these journals and whatnot that um, have been lost to time now. But, uh, and you talk in the book about writing poetry and, and it seemed as if poetry was your sort of like entree into the creative writing world. Is that true? wrote the most poetry I, I did a lot of short stories I mean I wrote anything mm -hmm. I published like teen mags anything mm -hmm. when I was nine I was publishing like heartthrob mags and stuff like that so <laughs> what 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 started the the move toward drama writing for the stage uh in 10th grade well I had a friend Rashida who was a singer and we used to write songs together she was, I'm not much of a singer. She was more of a singer, but we would write the songs together. And then we would sometimes like make up plots to connect them. So that, again, that was just play. Um, then in 10th grade, no, 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 no. In eighth grade, um, we had to do an eighth grade musical and we decided to write our own rather than choose a musical from a catalog of pre-existing musicals. So I wrote I wrote a, a short musical called, that was part of the evening called My Best Friend Died. That was the title song. It was as earnest as it sounds. Um, and it was just a really natural, easy, fulfilling way to use my musical skills and my writing, my love for writing. Then in 10th grade, I, had, I took a creative writing class. And so our, our teacher made us write a 10 minute play and submit it to Philadelphia Young Playwrights. And that was probably my first like formal and intentional experience with quote unquote capital P playwriting. Uh, and I won that festival and they produced my play. Um, so that was the official entry point, I'd say. Was that sort of like a light bulb aha moment for you as a writer? Like, oh, maybe I just won a thing. 
writing this, maybe this is the form I should follow through on. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing like positive feedback, right? Um, I'm thinking of my music composition teacher, Donald Rappaport. He was a beautiful, beautiful soul, rest his soul. And, you know, I just loved the man and he never charged me a cent for any of our lessons. My piano teacher got annoyed at me and sent me down the hall because I was always playing stuff I had written rather than the like Chopin she had assigned. She was like, you know what, just go down the hall and talk to Donald Rappaport. And then he was like, okay, you're my student now. Never charged me for lessons. And he gave me just very positive feedback the first time and continually. And that's what kept me going. That's probably what happened with Philadelphia Young Playwrights too. Did you, around that time period, just start to, when you were sitting down to write something, were you still writing poetry and short stories or were you, were you starting to, you know? Yes, all of the above. Yeah. yeah, writing was just writing. There were no genres for me. The genres didn't exist. If you, if between the years of 1991 and 1995, you went through Central High School's archives, you will see that I'm in every issue of the Mirror with poems. I'm in every issue of the Centralizer with you know ground hard hitting journalism affecting the school. Um, you know, I tried to get a drama program going on at the school, but there really wasn't one, but I was, you know, writing plays for my friends to perform and stuff. It was, you know, writing was just writing. Were you reading any drama at the time? Only, yeah, yeah, in, in English class, definitely. So we read The Crucible. And that was, we read The Crucible and Macbeth in the same year. And that, that was 10th grade. And I, don't, I literally don't understand how any 10th grader can understand the crucible. I mean, it, it's so ludicrous to assign that in 10th grade. To me, what, watching the students like act it out then and reading it, it felt like a vilification of witches. This same thing happens in Macbeth though, the witches are more, like, I had these two witch plays assigned to me in 10th grade. And this is also at a time that I'm coming to understand and respect, but, and yet I'm still have confusion surrounding my mother being a priest in Lukumi. And so I had a pretty negative reaction against the Crucible and um, Macbeth because I thought this is like telling the story that witches are ridiculous. Um, and that was not my personal experience. So I kind of felt like those plays were dissing my mom. <laughs> Did you rebel against them in class in any way? Yes. Yes, I really, our, our teacher that year, she made us like cackle, she made us cackle like the witches and I wouldn't do it. I did my own dramatic reading of, of both of those plays and I, I refused to cackle. I wasn't gonna do the Wicked Witch of the West cackle, um, you know, so I, I might've gotten in trouble for that. I don't remember, but I didn't care. I, I found it kind of demeaning. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, you of any student, in your class, I assume, had such a specific and unique perspective on this. I still, you know, having encountered the crucible again as an adult, I still see it through multiple eyes. And there is a part of me that does think that that teenage reaction I had was accurate and was seeing something that was happening there. He wasn't just he was criticizing McCarthyism. I understand that now. That's what our teacher said in 10th grade, but I didn't understand that then. I understand it now as an adult, but I don't think he was, and, and I think he was even criticizing the notion of a witch hunt 
but he wasn't criticizing the cultural notion of a witch as much. And he was like peddling in it a little bit too. So, you know, I still, the play moves me deeply, but it's still hard to see that sort of enactment of witchiness on stage for me. I should mention that another big influence in my life that probably affected theater in a way that wasn't writing oriented for me was that my aunt, Linda Hudes wrote music for the Big Apple Circus for 20 years. So she taught me piano. She taught me how to play piano. She taught me how to read music. Um, and I would come up, the Big Apple Circus had, a, had like a three month sit down in New York every year and then they would go tour nationally. And so during that sit down, she would compose the next year's score and she'd also be playing this year's score. And so she would have me copy her charts. She would sit me next to her on the bandstand during rehearsals and I'd turn pages. And so I witnessed a lot of excellent circus throughout my life. And I became, I would say like a real connoisseur of it, um, especially some of the clown acts that I thought were quite impressive. Um, and I think those were actually my early theatrical education. There was one act, this isn't in the book. I, I feel like it's its whole own memoir of my life, which is like my circus time. But um, there was one act by Jeff Gordon, whose clown name was Mr. Gordoon. And he would take, he would put a roll of toilet paper on a dowel so that it was kind of like loose. And then he would take a leaf blower and blow upward so that the toilet paper would unfurl into a cloud and he'd use the leaf blower to juggle it in the air. So it would be a floating cloud of toilet paper in the air and he'd have to run back and forth to keep it afloat. And then the end of the clown act, you know, it's really fun because you see like, oh, that part of the cloud is dropping over there, but he'd run and get it just in time. And then the end of the clown act was he'd just turn off the power switch on the leaf blower and the whole cloud would fall onto him and he would dance off stage wearing the cloud of toilet paper. I mean, I still think it's probably like as close to a masterclass in what theater, what theater can be at its best as any I've ever had in my life. You're young and you're watching this magic happen on stage. You know, it's it must have been. Because it's not, it's authored in the sense that he's decided to tell a story with what he can do with these materials, but it's unauthored in the sense that there's no illusion or pretending involved. It's literally what's happening in the story is what's happening on stage. And so it's the, it's the marriage of those two things of reality and make-believe, that's, I mean, it's the best theater I've ever seen, you know? So I was thinking, I, I had that stuff in my mind a lot too. And at the same time, in, in my living room and in other living rooms around Philly, I was going to these incredible ceremonies that centered community where the Baghdad drums are playing, um, where the, the, the liturgical speech involved is, wildly poetic and powerful. And I think that probably influenced, again, it wasn't so much about the literature. I think it influenced an aesthetic in me that is at its nature about gathering. It's about storytelling with bodies and space. Um, so I, I do think in some ways the my, my mother's uh, religious life and my aunt's Big Apple Circus years are like the two biggest theater influences I had as a playwright. What was the first play that you encountered where you felt like it was really speaking to you? I saw a few. Um, I think the first play I remember seeing was at second stage. It was called The Good Times Are Killing Me and it was by Linda Barry. It was an adaptation of her like comic strips and graphic novels. Um, so it was about a friendship between a black girl and a white girl. I don't remember much beyond that, but it was 
two child actors who who led it. And so that I really that left an impression on me. Um, the the one I saw next uh, was Serafina. Um, my aunt took me to see that. And again, it's about school children. Um, in this case, it's set in South Africa during apartheid. And it's about school children who speak up against particular facets of apartheid that are affecting their lives. That, that just absolutely devastated me. I mean, there was a lot of joy in it, but like I had never, I had never left the country, let alone the continent. I like to be in a different, on a different continent in different, immersed in story and song like that. Um, it was, it was a really wild experience for me. They say that I like locked myself in my room and wouldn't come out all night. And I was just like crying and like very emotional. <laughs> it left a lasting impression. How old were you? Oh, it was early middle school at, yeah. at the latest. When you started to focus on your own dramatic writing, did you start to find other, other playwrights, published playwrights or playwrights being produced around the country at the time, who you started to sort of look at as like, I don't know, touchstones or, or something? I had, so by the time I left for college, I had read basically Shakespeare, Arthur Miller, and Eugene O'Neill were the three playwrights I had read um, in high school. When I got to college, my, my freshman year English seminar had a Stoppard and a Shanghai on it. So I read Arcadia um, and I read For Colored Girls. Um, so For Colored Girls was very important for me. That was the first time I had read a female playwright. And it was also the first time I read a black and poor person of color playwright. So that, that mattered deeply, deeply for me. I mean, I, I remember those words, you know, we had to, we had to take an essay test. And so um, in the essay test, it was like, it gave us some passages that we could choose from and then write an essay about. And, and one of them was the final passage about like endlessly weaving poems with the moon and a laying on of hands. And even I had already written my papers about it. Like I'd already read the play so many times, even rereading them in the essay test, I remember having a visceral emotional reaction to lead, reading a play written by a black woman about a laying on of hands because that's that laying on of hands is a tradition that was so immediate to me as a Puerto Rican woman. We healed each other. We literally healed each other. We were nurses, we were spiritualists and so, even upon, you know, fifth or sixth read in a fluorescent light essay test, Shange's words, you know, were just like rocking me in my body. Yeah, that reminds me of a, a moment you talk about in the book where you're writing in class uh, in AP English, I think it was, mm -hmm. in an essay and you're given a, one prompt and 52 minutes or whatever to respond to it. And you talk about going essentially out of your body, right? You know, it makes me, it puts a smile on my face because it makes me remember and talking about the essay test with Shange too. And I, and then I remembered the one with, as, as I was just mentioning it now, Arcadia by Tom Stoppard. I remembered that essay test too. And like the essay test was a real childhood superpower of mine. I wish I still had it. I wish, I wish like, an editor could give me the topic and be like, you have 53 minutes go and I could just nail it like I used to be able to back then. Um, the one, my senior year of high school, yes, it's a, it's a chapter in the book. And um, 
that was for Flannery O'Connor. We read a bunch of her novellas and short fiction. And it was cool because I had never been to the South and um, we read quite a bit of literature from the South. I believe she was the only like female that we read. Um, and I liked her stuff a lot because it was really weird and gnarly and kind of grotesque. And I was attracted to the fact that she was kind of boldly writing it. She was not a well-behaved or lovely lady, you know, uh, which was something I admired greatly in her. And when the essay test came and Dr. Phillips, the teacher, he said, uh, you know, it was high school, but he was Dr. Phillips and he, he made him, he made us call him that. Um, and he said, you know, write about the theme of fire in her work, go. There was so much freedom in that prompt. And the first thing that came to mind just through free association was the candles that were part of my mother's altars. My mother had these stunning altars throughout our house uh, that she had sewn and sculpted from hand. They were really, really gorgeous. And candles were a, a big part of the practice. And so I thought of Flannery O'Connor's use of fire in her work, but then I also thought of mom's use of fire. And all of a sudden, like, I, I just lost time. Like I lost reality. I had what felt maybe someone would call an out-of-body experience, except for it was almost 100% embodied. And I, I had an out-of-mind experience. My body just took over. Um, I was shaking. It felt like I was convulsing. It felt like I was on the floor at times. Um, I, I don't know what happened, but I, I handed him what I had written by the end. I didn't remember what it was. And people looked at me kind of like, Are, were you okay? You seemed like you were going through something there. I was like, yeah, I think I was okay. And then I, I reflected on that experience and I was like, I wonder if that's what my mother experienced the times that I had seen her in spirit possession, which, you know, I could, I knew it was different because she had, when I saw her in those states, she was channeling other voice, very specific voices. In this one, I felt like I was channeling parts of myself that I had never really directly confronted or something. Uh, and so the book, the plot of the book, actually the book ends with the last such experience of my life. The plot of the book is actually like four, what I would call kind of storytelling possessions I had as a child and then a young woman. Um, and I never had that again after the last one in the book. When that happened, after it happened, what did it tell you something about yourself? Uh, you know, you connected it to your, to your, to your mother, but did it say something, did it say something to you about your relationship to the written word and how you, maybe you have some kind of like innate aptitude for it? Well, I got an A on that essay test. So that told me about my aptitude for the written word, but no, the experience itself was not about the written word at all. It was about, it felt like a mask had been ripped off of me. It was about a much more like primal and spiritual experience I had. Then a decade later, not well, not quite a decade later, five years later, I was on an airplane. I was still in grad school, and I was, but I was flying out to Hispanic Playwrights Project in California at South Coast Repertory where I was gonna have a professional reading of one of my plays. So this is a very big deal for me. It's one of my first ex professional experiences. And my husband had given me a copy of James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain to read on the airplane. He was like, you're gonna like this book. And so I, I read the whole book on the airplane ride because it was like a really, you know, to go flying to California is a long ride. And so 
the last, as I'm remembering it, I could be wrong, but to me, it seemed like 50 pages where he basically has this speaking in tongues experience in his father's church. He collapses onto the floor of his father's church. He has this whole religious unhinged experience with the elders over him, taking care of him, making sure he doesn't like inadvertently self-harm or injure himself during that experience. Um, and it's a purging, it, it feel, it's really intense and it feels like he is purging something that he doesn't want in him and that he doesn't really have much control over it being in him. And I wept so hard reading that. I, rem I was embarrassed. I remember it was a middle seat on the airplane and I was embarrassed because the people on either side of me are like, what's, what's wrong with this girl? But I realized all of a sudden I was like, that has happened to me. What, how James Baldwin wrote it. I was like, that, that has happened to me. And I've had that experience. And for me, it was during these moments of storytelling and writing where it's, it's not pleasant. It was very ugly and brutal. And yet it did feel like an act of uncovering some sort of truth that lie within. Yeah, so that's, I think, when I started to understand it a little more clearly, not from my mom, but from James Baldwin. You know, you talked about starting to write plays. You know, you wrote, you wrote what is ostensibly a little, a little musical when you were in eighth grade with your friend, and then you wrote the 10-minute play in high school, and you won that award. How did, how did these early playwriting experiences or dramatic writing experience sort of like coalesce into you becoming a playwright? Like, did you ever have that moment where you said to yourself, I'm a playwright now, or did you just find yourself mostly writing drama? The moment came when, um, you're going to get here. So this is a spoiler for you, but, um, the moment came, <laughs> I did have that moment, but I didn't make the realization. Someone told me that this was my life path, which was my mother. And, you know, she said, why did you never pursue writing? I thought you realized, I thought it was so clear you couldn't not realize it. She's like, you're, you're a writer. And even at first when she said, it, I was like, well, of course I'm a writer. I still write, I love to write. She's like, no, 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 you don't understand what I'm talking about. Like, you, you, you are a writer. This is a pursuit that you need to take seriously because you've done it and you need to do consciously. And so as soon as she said that, it was a very short conversation, but that basically tipped the path for the rest of my life. Um, I thought, yes, okay. I, first of all, I hadn't really realized that uh, Puerto Rican women could be writers. Um, so that was just a good little like, duh, you can for, moment for me. Um, but then I realized I wasn't really trained and I hadn't majored in English or anything. So probably my literary reading and my understanding of literature was a little bit behind. So I was like, let me go back to school and pursue this truly. And I just, I, you know, I applied to playwriting school. I guess that's because I had been trained as a musician, it felt the closest to my skill set because it was still a stage practice. Um, but really, I, I, I think I fell a little bit prey to this notion that there's specializations as writers, but by the same token, I've, I think I've always been a kind of generalist as a writer also. What, what, where were you in your life when your mother said this to you? I was, I was a gig musician in Philadelphia. So it was around 2000, it was like 1999 to 2001. 
out of you're out of undergrad at this point yes i had graduated i had moved back to philly back to west philly and at that time the roots had not only taken off they used to play on the philly street corners and i'd see them either with a bucket or sometimes um like playing drums on a bucket or sometimes they would have a very basic snare setup um and so i would you know by, by the time i that was in my high school years but by the time i came back from college they had hit it big on a national level and they had also decided to invest in their hometown scene so they started this movement called okay player which had open mics it hosted rising stars like jill scott john legend who i believe was john stevens back then i don't totally remember he wasn't john legend uh when i saw him um kindred the family soul jazzy fat nasties jaguar right like it was a it was an incredibly um fertile time in the Philadelphia music scene. Uh, not the first fertile time in the Philadelphia sound, but it was big and I happened to be a gig musician at the time. Um, so I joined in, I met, I, I was playing with, with these great musicians. Um, I was recording demos with these great producers and yet something wasn't clicking into place for me. So there's, there's a chapter that looks at this gig I had opening for Gil Scott Heron in Philly um and he said to me he asked me a question as i got to know him gil, gil scott heron is of course um known as the founder of spoken word and the founder of of hip-hop his incredible performance poetry includes um the revolution will not be televised whitey on the moon um rest in peace gil scott heron so he i was getting to know him in in the green room before the gig and he's like so who are you tell me about you like just breaking the ice, but he had a very genuine and direct way of asking it. He actually wanted to know. And a music producer had asked me a similar question earlier that week. And in both instances, I, I literally did not know how to answer the question. And I found that fact so profoundly alarming that I, you know, I felt lost all of a sudden. I was doing exactly what I had spent my whole life training to do. It was so fun. I was having a blast and enjoying myself. But the fact that I couldn't answer, who are you, was a major red flag and I knew it. And that's how I knew I was, something was missing. Something was missing. I don't know if I knew, oh, I'm on the wrong path. But I was like, if you can't answer that question, you've got real problems as an artist. And I think when my mom said to me, in proximity to all this, when she said to me, you're a writer, I all of a sudden knew the answer to the question. That's beautiful. So around this time is when you were like, all right, I'm gonna study, I'm gonna study playwriting, I'm gonna study dramatic writing, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to school and specialize in that. Yeah, and I had no idea where to begin because I hadn't, read that many plays. In undergrad, I took a modern drama class. Um, so I had read some more. I had read some Tennessee Williams. I had read, still hadn't read any August Wilson. Um, I had read Angels in America. So I knew a little bit more about dramatic history, but not that much. So I had to look at what programs there were. And then I didn't know who any of the teachers were. So I had to read plays by them to figure out who these people, who these artists were. So that's how I found Paula Vogel and Brown. I read her plays and I was like, what? Oh my God, this woman is crazy. This woman is 
batshit out of her mind. Like she's so bad to the bone. She's so original. She's writing about women in a way that touched down very deeply with me because um, she was writing about women on her own terms and centering her experience as a woman, not writing reactively um, against, you know, how women have been written about. So I don't know. She just, that was a ticket to a whole new ball for me. I had a similar experience when I encountered Luis Alfaro's work. I was working at a theater that was producing one of the first productions of Oedipus El Rey. And I was just becoming, I was only a couple of years into writing plays on my own and thinking about grad school. And then met him, got to spend time with him because you know it was a theater in his home city. So he was around a lot and it was essentially a world premiere of this show. And meeting him and getting to know him and getting to know his work, like in the way it sort of emotionally explodes and how uh, he writes about uh, his identity in such beautiful and poetic ways. I was like, I need to learn from this person. So I applied to USC and only USC. I, I was, I was all in to learn from Luis or I wasn't going to go to grad school. I was going to do yeah. something else entirely. So I kind of, I, like, I hear that when you, when you encounter Paula's work, you know, uh, cause Paula, I found in my encounters with her, I put Paula and Luis together in very similar ways because they so beautifully are able to connect to you as a human being when when they talk to you and um, and they both are able to articulate their crafts in such beautiful ways but in very uh, accessible ways and I credit I credit uh, both of them with with helping me sort of like open up my chest and write from within there rather than up in my head which is where I was when I started as as a writer have you seen his solo stuff with, oh. I don't remember the names of these pieces, but I, I, when I saw him do that stuff, I was like right back at the Big Apple Circus. And, and here's why, because he comes out and he's talking about how his family kind of self-medicated through their uh, migrant experience and through their, like the quote unquote American dream, having come from Mexico. So, you know, at first he's doing shots of tequila on stage and look, any, everyone in the audience is going, right, but it could be water, right? And then, um, <laughs> and then when he talks about self-medication through eating and he starts opening the Twinkie boxes. Oh, yes. And eating, <laughs> like, it, like, you know, those 24 pack boxes of Twinkies. Well, he had multiple ones of those boxes and he starts eating one after another. The audience is going, okay, that's not water. You can't fake that. Um, and he eats, you know, more than one of those full boxes. And it put me right back with the Big Apple Circus because that's the thing with the toilet paper act is it's storytelling, but the physical experience on stage is real. So it's actually, it's, it's imaginary and it's real. And that I, I think for me, the most powerful theater happens when the imagination and reality when there's no separation between them. I find it like shocking and awesome. Were you able to start finding those moments in your own work when you got to grad school? Yeah, have I ever lived up to those moments? I don't, I, probably not. Um, but the first play I wrote in grad school 
I was experimenting with something I, I called rituals. So it was a play called Yamaja's Belly. And Yamaja is the Orisha of the ocean and of motherhood. And um, in the play, uh, a boy in the Caribbean comes of age and there's these rituals where the dialogue stops. Like for instance, he, he gets, he goes to the city and he sees a very sexual and beautiful woman who's wearing a costume and he steals a feather and his uncle gets really mad at him for stealing the feather. And, and then the boy, and then the dialogue stops and the boy has this quote unquote ritual with the feather, which is he takes the feather and he uses it to draw little circles around his nipples. And that's it. That's the whole thing. But for me, it's like a kind of theatricalized and ceremonialized wordless physicalization of his sexual awakening as a boy. So there were, so these sorts of little rituals were throughout the play. There was another one where a character's wife passed and they had a little roadside stand where they sold rice and he takes a cup of the rice, which is almost all gone because they've been financially devastated. He takes his last cup of dry rice and he pours it over her head, imagining it's her ashes. So that was another such you know, ritual. So I was experimenting with how to, how bodies can be on the stage for sure. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. If you had a moment where you, where you were like, shit, this, I can do this. And, and this is, this is now who I am. And this is what I'm going to do. Literally the moment my mom said, you are a writer. I was like, oh, okay. Yes. Got it. I got the memo. Um, and I had no question what about success, whether I could, whether I could. And I just knew that that was my life path. And it was a very natural and easy way to feel, you know, with all of the career questions, with all the production questions that then come as one tries to um, pay their bills doing this thing. I just always like reconnected with my internal sense of purpose. But Paula, I mean, from the first time I met her and when she picked me up and she was trying to convince me to go to Brown. So this was just me visiting Providence as a little bit, as a little guest. She like pulled up in this cool little sports car and she was like, playwriting can get you this. I mean, she was, she was absolutely like, oh yeah, no, you're going to make money as a playwright. That she was like, yes, you're going to make your living off of playwriting. And I didn't, it's not like my parents were saying, oh no, you have to be a doctor or something. They didn't know. What did they, what did they know about playwriting? Like, they were like, okay, sounds good. I was like, sounds good to me. So off, off we went. In 2018, you had that speech you gave at the ATHA conference mm -hmm. where you talked about the, the, I'm not sure if the word is right, damage, you know, the, the, the negative feelings you were experiencing around producing, like having plays produced and opening nights. And you talked about how you felt the need to pause, you know, at that time. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about where you are now relative to when you, when you delivered that speech. I'm writing lyrics for a musical. So, and it's an adaptation of like Water for Chocolate. Um, so I feel like it's a, it's a, a soft entry back in I have two plays that I've wanted to write for quite a few years now. One would be a continuation of the plays I've been writing, which sticks with the same kind of cast of family characters um, telling the next chapter. Um, and then another one is uh, 
about a man named Corey Menefee, who was a dining hall worker at Yale and kind of became an unwitting activist by smashing a stained glass window that romanticized slavery. So those are two plays I, that are commissioned and that I have wanted to write for a long time, but I, I'm gonna do these lyrics first and hopefully, I, I really wanna write these plays. So hopefully I'll feel ready after, after I survived the opening night with these, with these lyrics. <laughs> well, I hope so too. Um, well, thank you for giving me some time. I really appreciate it. And I'm loving your book and I hope everybody reads it. Best of luck with your own personal writing. It's, I appreciate it. Thank you. It's quite a roller coaster. It is. Quite a roller coaster. I don't know if you've been journaling or, or doing any sort of like therapy or self-care during it, but I found all of those things really important for during my process. Yeah. 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 I should probably do more of that and, and, and uh, less talking. I do a lot of talking. Um, and I do see, I think over your shoulder is a bottle of writer's tears. If yeah, I recognize my sister Arielle brought that for me from Ireland. I can't even remember what yeah. she was doing there. I guess just vacationing maybe? I have the same bottle. <laughs> it's empty. <laughs> I drink it, I drink it when I, I drink it when I need it. At much respect, much respect. I feel that, especially since the bars are closed all yeah. year. Yeah, so. But anyway, thanks again. And I know this must be exhausting, so I do appreciate you, you no, giving me this time. It's only, it, you know, it's minimally exhausting. It's, it's true. for finding some time to talk to me. You can find her memoir, My Broken Language, wherever books are sold. And in just a few weeks, you'll be able to catch the film adaptation of In the Heights on the big screen. Music in this episode is from Chad Crouch. The theme song to the subtext is by International Pen Pal. Thanks, as always, to the editor-in-chief of American Theatre Magazine, Rob Weiner-Kent. KJ Jarbo is the associate producer of the subtext. This episode was produced and edited by me. Like and follow us on the Twitters, Facebooks, and Instagrams, and feel free to call or email if you've got something you really want to say to us. All right, thanks for listening. The play filling me up this month is Mentors by Kristen Palmer. This is a timely and tightly written three-hander that's about the slippery sloped mentor relationships. It's a great play. 